How to Kill Sin, Romans 8, 12 to 14. Do you have that text in your notes? Yeah? Can you? It's, you can read it. It's light enough to read, right? Let's read it out loud together, okay? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. Powerful verses. When you, when you read and see, if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See that last half of verse 13. And you wonder what that... What does that mean? This is what we're studying tonight. What does it mean by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? And then in 14, when he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God. So, so in my notes, I underlined, by the Spirit you put to death. And then 14, people who are led by the Spirit of God. So somehow, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit has something to do with being led by the Spirit. Those are the two phrases where he talks about the Holy Spirit, and I think they're related to each other. So when he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, it has something to do with my life being led by the Spirit of God. But that's all Paul says. I want to look at tonight and really analyze, what is that process? How do you kill sin? That's what he means, put to death the deeds of the body. And how is it related to the Holy Spirit? The powerful verses. And there, you can tell, you can tell in Paul's writing that there's, they're designed to cut the legs out from under the notion that when we sin, well, we just, we can't help it. Sin always feels unavoidable when you commit it. It isn't, but it always feels like it is. And so it's easy to develop a, a default sort of rationalization and just pleading helplessness in the face of temptation. And that's why Paul, he, he starts this section off with a concept that most of us can understand. Debt. See it in that 12th verse? We are debtors. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. Live according to the flesh. It's a good word choice because almost nothing pictures obligation for us like debt does. You can't wait to eliminate that mortgage. That's because it hangs over us for so much of our lives. When you have a mortgage, you have to Pay it. That, that means, of course, you can't put more money into optional things because your money must go into your mortgage. Your, your debts, debtor. Your debts, they kind of diminish your freedom to put your money where you might prefer to put your money. And you can't just forget about the debt. You can't just ignore it. There are deadlines, there are dates, there are amounts. Next time you feel like, Nobody cares whether you're dead or alive. Just try missing a couple mortgage payments. 
They care. They will be in touch. That's what it means to be a debtor. So Paul, he picks up that concept because we can all clue into it. But there's something worse. Now, I talked about having a more... Picture a different situation. Just pretend for a minute. Even worse than having a big mortgage and a debt would be, would be thinking you were in debt when in fact you weren't. I mean, imagine a person struggling, just struggling, staying up late, getting up early to, just to put money away each month for a mortgage payment that no longer existed, only you didn't know that. Imagine carrying around that burden. You're skipping vacations. You're skipping holidays. You don't buy the second car. You're diminishing leisure. You're, you're not paying for your kid's education. All because you thought you owed the bank this huge amount of money each month when you didn't. Now, that's the situation Paul is describing in our text today. He's talking about people who think they're debtors to the flesh when they aren't. Those words, so then, in verse 12, they, they draw our minds backwards. We back up to what he was just talking about in verses, well, 9, 10, and 11, right before verse 12. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, if Christ is in you, notice how he can, he can interchange the Spirit of Christ, Christ, the Spirit, Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ, and he, he gives it both labels. But if Christ, verse 10, is in you, although, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I want to talk about that in a minute. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then come those important words in verse 12. So then, or in view of this, or because of all this, knowing this is now true of you, things are permanently different. And so Paul wants us to mark a definite record of a huge change in these verses. We are not debtors, verse 12. We are not debt. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So here's Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and what he says is, stop making payments to sin. Stop making payments to the flesh. Stop living as though you were obligated to the desires that used to dominate your life. You might think you still have to do that, but you don't. You belong to Christ. All right, so that's what he says. But what I want to study tonight is, how does this work? How is this change that has taken place, how, how do I cooperate in this process? 
How do you cooperate in this process? So, so that we're not, we're not debtors to the flesh. We're not making payments to the flesh, but walking in the Spirit and finding freedom and deliverance in life. How does that happen? Because it doesn't seem to happen for everybody. How does that work? There's nothing more important, I don't think, than these questions. And so what Paul does in our text tonight, it's not a long text, but it's involved. He, he kind of takes our hand and he, and he walks us through the details. He doesn't want me just assuming that I know these things. He doesn't want us just sort of saying amen and nodding in agreement. Rini gets after me. We'll be going somewhere before the day of Google Maps and and I'll stop and I'll ask somebody for directions, but I don't want to admit that I don't know what they're talking about. So I've got the window down and there's somebody giving this whole string of directions and I just go, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the guy walks away and he goes, you don't have a clue where you're going, do you? But I didn't want to look like an idiot. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Paul doesn't want me doing that with this text. I mean, we know the phrases. We know the lingo. We know the terminology. That's not what Paul's after. He wants us to understand how do we kill sin in the power of the Spirit. How does that happen? Okay, point number one. Free, justifying grace pushes us into a desperate battle to kill indwelling sin. 12 and 13. We are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now here's here's the how-to part. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, Here's what I take that to mean. What, What do you get when you come to Jesus for saving grace? Dear Jesus, come into my heart whatever terminology we use, asking Jesus into your heart, accepting Christ, being born again, saved, converted. You know the the terminology. So you come and you ask and he gives. What did he give you? Eternal life. Yeah, I know. Forgiveness. Yeah, I know. But what else? What did he give you? And he says this. The first thing that grace does after pardoning is it awakens, it awakens in me what's at stake in my Christian walk. Because I never used to think of that. Nothing could be clearer than the warning Paul sounds in this text. First part of verse 12. For if you, if you live, Don, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But I never considered it that deeply until the Holy Spirit came and opened my eyes. I was careless about sin. So were you. The Holy Spirit comes. He pardons you. And then the first thing he does is he awakens you to realities that you never considered with due weight before. And we need to be careful here. I don't earn God's grace by putting to death the deeds of the body. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, the proof that I have received divine grace and received God's Spirit 
is that I long to put to death sinful deeds. I don't qualify by putting to death sinful deeds. But I long to do that. Let me, let me try and clear up a big misunderstanding. Christ's righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, clothed in his righteousness. I believe in that. But Christ's righteousness, when I was saved, Christ's righteousness was not applied to my life as a replacement of my holiness, but rather as the empowerment for my holiness. Does everybody see that difference? His righteousness was not a replacement for my righteousness, but an empowerment for my righteousness. There's the order. Grace first, righteousness first, cleansing first, not by works. But once it's received, I'm not a debtor to the flesh anymore. There's something that gets awakened in my heart. Something else here. When Paul says those who live according to the flesh will die, he isn't talking about physical death. We know that because he tells us in the next phrase that those who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body will live. But they're still going to (laughs) die. So he's not talking about physical death here. All of them will die physically. The death he's talking about is spiritual death, eternal death. That's what's at stake Grace, when it comes, it awakens this in me. This this understanding of the nature of the battle. The hugeness of the issue. I used to care about, about money. I used to care about this. I used to care about that. I used to care about sports. I used to care about movies. I used to care about all sorts of things. And then all of a sudden, when the Spirit came, I thought, man, there's, 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 this is huge. This matters. Paul is saying, if we know this, the Spirit comes and dwells in us, and we see the seriousness of sin, we see the spiritual death that it brings, then we'll we'll start to allow the Holy Spirit to make us violent against sins of the flesh. This is not legalism. Away with this notion. It's rampant in the church. It's the Spirit inspiring this battle. Legalism, here's how you can tell the difference. Legalism is never pleasing to the Lord. Crucifying sin is always pleasing to the Lord. You see the difference? Legalism is earning my salvation by my works. Dealing with the sins of the flesh is the result of the Spirit's presence in my life already through divine grace. It's a spirit-inspired battle against sin. John Piper puts it this way. Stop making peace with ears and eyes and tongues and hands and feet that will only betray you like Judas. That's it exactly. Listen to these words from Ed Welch's new book, A Banquet in the Grave. Listen to this. There is a mean streak to authentic spirituality. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, that's true, we also demand of ourselves a hatred of sin. 
The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear the snap of a twig or the rustling of leaves, and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps you vigilant. That's a great quote. Until you understand that spiritual life is war, you'll just, you'll just play at the edges of Christianity. It's what Jesus meant when he said, Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. He doesn't mean violence against others. He means violence against personal sin. It, it, it's the same thing as when he said this, Matthew eighteen eight. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, just ask Jesus for forgiveness. Is that in your notes? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. Jesus doesn't need us to explain to him the nature of grace. He's the one who died on the cross for my sins. He understands grace. He's the giver of it. But what grace does is it makes you willing to do anything to be done with sin. By the way, this, this is not in your notes. But just one other thing. There are all sorts of Christians who wrestle with sin that they don't have to wrestle with because they constantly try and deal with sin with little decisions. Little decisions are useless in killing sin. There's nothing little about cutting off your hand or your foot. I think what Jesus is saying is if you're serious about following me and you're finding an area of life where you get tripped up, do pray about it. Do seek the Lord. Do read the word. Do get help. But small decisions are useless. Make a big decision. You know, if you find out your, your, your dog, something wrong with your dog, and he has to go to the vet and they have to cut off his tail, don't do it an inch at a time. Right? You cut it off. It's the same thing in the Christian walk. Relates to all... Let me just... I'm not preaching this. I'm not saying I can show you this from the Bible. It's just personal, okay? Just me personally, so don't... That's all I'm talking about here. I'm not proclaiming this as an edict of some kind. I don't... I, I, uh, I go through the Bible, and I see over and over again these cautions against, against uh, drunkenness. Over and over again. In the parables, in the teaching of Paul, in the teaching of Jesus, in the teaching of Peter, you see it over over in the Bible. I'm not saying this is for everybody, but I, I can remember in my own life coming to the point after my upbringing, there were rules in the house, but when I got to make my own decisions, I just thought, you know what, the safest way for me, I, I don't drink. And here's one thing I know for sure. I will never get drunk. Right? So to me, it was just one of those illustrations. I'm going to just make the big decision. It's easy, and it saves me a bunch of money. 
I'm going to make the big decision now, and I'll never have to think about this the rest of my life. Now, I'm not prescribing that for everybody. I'm just saying you'll have your area too. Find out what the big decision is, make it once, make it ruthlessly, and be done with it. I feel so sorry for people who get up every Sunday morning thinking, oh man, I'm tired. Am I going to go to church? A really busy week. It's really cold out. And they wrestle with this week after week. Instead of saying, you know what, it's the Lord's Day. Between now and my grave, we go to church on Sunday. And you're done. And your kids go to youth. Even if they whine about going to youth. You make the decision, we're done. Cut off the hand, cut off the foot. Make the decision, make it a big one, and be done with it. That's how the Holy Spirit leads and directs people The time to kill the sinful deeds of the flesh is before they actually happen. I get that out of 13 and 14 again, where he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For, for means I'm continuing the thought here. All who are led by the Spirit of God. That's the key phrase. Somehow, the, the key to putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, it has something to do with being led by the Holy Spirit. I take that to mean this, that, that I, I can't simply kill the sinful deeds of the body at the last minute, right at the moment of temptation, and try and put the brakes on and stop doing something. I'll always fall short if that's my approach. How does the Holy Spirit change all of this how how does he make killing the sinful deeds of the body something more than just my own moral improvement i think paul has already hinted at how this works and it's in romans 8 5 he says for those who live according to the flesh is that in your notes that verse Okay, good. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They aren't just counting on a a hot altar call in a church service. They've, They've done something with the patterns of their thought that greatly increase the odds of success in pursuing holiness. Just as... People who set their minds in the other direction greatly increase their odds of failure. Sinful deeds have to be killed at their root. You can't change sinful deeds at the point of action. That's way too late. They gain momentum. The the sinful deeds of the flesh, they have to be killed earlier on. Before the moment of actual temptation. Paul says, this is key, there are people who have learned to set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They do it all the time. They do it when they don't even sense a spiritual battle or any kind of temptation. They do it when they don't even sense they're being all that blessed by it. But they're pouring their minds in a certain direction all the time. And they're probably totally unaware that in doing so, they're greatly increasing their odds of killing sin down the road. Now, remains to be seen 
in this argument so far, how are we to put to death the deeds of the body by minding the things of the spirit? What things? What are the things of the spirit and how do we mind them? Point number three. So we're well over halfway done, okay? Hang in. Believing the word of God is the link between the Holy Spirit and the power to kill sin. 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there it is, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, there are several steps in this, in this closing point. First, we've already seen the link between Romans 8.13 and Romans 8.5. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So I said, remember, that it's too late to start fighting the deeds of the flesh at the last minute, at the point of temptation. There's, a, there's a, a, a diet, there's an ongoing practice of minding the things of the Spirit. That, that's where we are. So the capacity to kill the sins of the flesh, it comes from the Holy Spirit, Romans 8.13, and it comes more specifically from setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8, 5. So we gain power by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. You're with me so far? That's where we're at. We gain power by setting our minds not on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. So the question ought to be now, what are the things of the Spirit? And what does it mean to set my mind on them? There's only one other place in the whole Bible where that phrase, the things of the Spirit, is used. And it ought to interest us because it's exactly the same phrase that's in our text. What are the things of the Spirit? By the way, that's how you study the Bible. If you want to know what something means in a verse, look up that same phrase somewhere else. Get a bigger picture. Expand your understanding of it. Paul uses those same exact words, the things of the Spirit, the same five words, and he uses them in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14 because we want to know what it means to mind the things of the Spirit. And here's what that text says, 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. And we impart this, he's talking about his, his speaking, his teaching, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 14. The natural person does not accept, and here it is, the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them. They're spiritually discerned. When Paul says he's not able to understand them, he doesn't mean this person is just not bright enough. He doesn't know what those nouns and verbs mean. He can't put a sentence together. That's not what Paul means. It's not an intellectual thing. He says that earlier. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So here, 
The things of the Spirit are words taught by the apostles, the doctrines, the teachings of the New Testament. So when Paul says that those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8, 5, he means they, they constantly, continuously, devotedly set their minds deeply on on the Word of God. You got a Bible. But he means these people, these people take the words off the page, study them to the point that they, they start to cherish them. They see things that they didn't see before. They make sure that they're learning new things. They make sure that they're memorizing Scripture. They make sure that they're ingesting it day by day. All right, so now, now we're on our way to discovering how we kill sin in the power of the Spirit. It starts with minding the things of the Spirit. And this text says, it's the writing and the teaching of the apostles, Jesus in the New Testament. That's where you'll find the things of the Spirit. And the reason I think that's accurate is because Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians six seventeen, where he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There it is again. The things of the Spirit are somehow tied to the Word of God, the Scriptures. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. Now, don't soften that. There's a reason it's called the sword of the Spirit. What do you do with, especially in that day, what's a sword for? I mean, it's not for, now we just, you dub somebody as a knight. Or, but that's not what they use swords for. Swords were for carving up enemies, right? That's what a sword was. It's the, it's the sword of the Spirit, and we're talking about how to kill sin. Now, we're well on our way, but not quite done. We know what the things of the Spirit are. We know what minding the things of the Spirit means. There's only one more step. How how does the Holy Spirit use that word to kill sin in my life? It's where the rubber meets the road. How can this truth be like a a flame with actual power that burns up sin instead of just another Bible study, another sermon in a church. Paul explains this, Galatians 3, 5. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And what's the answer? The hearing of faith, obviously. It's a rhetorical question. So now he's talking about, he's talking about the hearing of faith. Hearing the word with faith. The hearing of faith. That's the key. Not just hearing, not just listening, but the the hearing of faith. And what that means is, it means that the power of the Spirit, the sin-killing power of the Spirit... It, it isn't going to be conveyed just automatically because there's print on these pages or because I hear a sermon or a study. It's not going to work automatically. 
the power to kill sin, to kill sin before the outward act gets committed, it comes from the hearing of faith. That is, believing God's promise more than believing the promise of sinful desires. Believing God's promise more than believing the pull of your own sinful desires. Which do you rely on more? That's the key to the Holy Spirit using the word to kill sin in your life. That's just a concept. Now let me show you examples, and then we're done. I want to show you that principle because it's repeated over and over again in the Bible. We trust God's sovereignty to look after our personal rights more than we trust our own inclination for revenge. See, now we're believing God's promise more than our desires. You'll see it in Romans 12, 19 to 21. Look, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Why would I leave it to the wrath of God? I'm angry. I've been mistreated. I have a right to strike back. Justice would give me the right to strike back because I've honestly been wronged. Why would I leave it to the wrath of God? Well, because it's written. It's written, quote, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see what the hearing of faith is? Ron does something really mean to me. I would love to strike back and get even. Everything in me desires to do that. Sin is crouching at the door. Am I going to listen to those desires, or am I going to stop and say, here's what God promises, okay? God promises I'm free from vengeance. I don't have to do it. Why? He will look after it. Either that sin of my brother is dealt with on the cross, or he will be judged for it when Jesus comes again. Either way, I trust God's word more than I trust my instincts. Everybody see what I'm talking about there? Let me give you another example. This works, church. I trust God's promise to meet my material needs more than I Trust my own greed with my security. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and then verses 10 and 11. Paul writes to this church at Corinth, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I'm sorry. You get in the habit of just throwing in 20 bucks once in a while in the offering plate. You're going to reap not just money, but your life. You're going to be meager reapers your whole life. That's what Paul says. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a promise. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. And so you know what happens. You go over the books and, oh, man can't afford to tithe this month a tenth that's a lot of money we're behind on the visa bill the brakes went on the car if i if i if i am faithful to the lord i'm not gonna have enough money 
Do you know how many people sit in church week after week after week in that place through their mind and they've never learned? That's their desire to secure their own life or you can take the promise of God, right? You can take the promise of God. So how do you kill sin? Well, it's trusting the promise of God more than you trust your own desires, your own inclinations, your own reflexes. That's what Paul means. Minding the things of the Spirit. Killing sin by allowing the Holy Spirit to set your mind on the things of God so you trust the promises. It's the hearing of faith. Not hearing, hearing with faith. You trust the promise of God more than you trust your own instincts. And that is how you kill sin. And that is how you go in righteousness.